people that have spoken at the front will relate to this, but it's just wonderful to be able to come up to the front and share God's word on the back of a time of worship. And I do believe what Fred brought is very important to us. That we don't harden our hearts when the word of God comes. Because God will never go against our will. Isn't that wonderful? He always gives us the freedom of choice. And when he speaks to us, he will never, ever make us do what he says. Isn't that wonderful? But you see, the problem is, when we don't do what he says, we harden our heart against his word. But the reverse is true. When we begin to respond to the word of God, our heart becomes softer. And God wants a people with soft hearts. Amen. His heart is soft and sensitive and he wants a people who are sensitive to his spirit with soft hearts. And that comes by the word of God. So this morning we're looking at the second part of Genesis chapter 26. And because I've known about this passage for some time from Steve, I've had plenty of chance to read it through, think about it, meditate on it, pray about it. And I've just been thrilled as I've thought about this passage. But I have to say, right at the beginning that I'm very aware that what I've got to share is both challenging and encouraging. You know, God wants us to grow, as I mentioned before, and sometimes he says, well, I need to bring a word of challenge to help you grow. And sometimes he looks at us and he says, well, what I actually need to do now is I need to bring a word of encouragement to help you grow. And I pray this morning that where we need challenging, we'll be challenged. Where we need encouraging, we'll be encouraged. But in amongst it all, we have to remember God is a God who loves us and only wants the best for us and wants us to grow. And we heard last week, didn't we, in the beginning of, of chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 26, where God blessed Isaac and Isaac lied about his, his wife being his sister. And then God so blessed him, he became so great. And the king of Bimelech said, come on, you've got to leave this land. You're coming too powerful for us. And right towards the end, we discovered something. And that was the wells that Abraham and his people had dug were filled in. And we come into the next part of chapter 26 and it can almost be considered in three sections and I just want to think about two of them. And it, and it boils down to this, as we'll read in a minute. The beginning of chapter 26 is where Isaac and his men begin to dig those wells again. Those wells that have become filled. And then a little bit further on, and that's where we'll be heading, we'll be thinking about the wells and then we'll be heading to the next bit, which is where Isaac builds an altar to God. A wonderful phrase, as I hope we'll see. And then the last little bit, which we won't be looking at, but the last little bit in the chapter is where Abimelech sees Isaac so strong, and because he's afraid of him, he comes to him and he says, Isaac, please make a covenant with me that you won't do us any harm. And Isaac makes a covenant with him. So this morning, the title, if we want a title for this morning, is simply this, Isaac builds an altar. Isaac builds an altar. So let's go to Genesis chapter 26. And uh, just starting to read the last couple of verses from last week. And then following on from there. So we're reading from Genesis chapter 26 and verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. 
And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerah and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants, uh, when, sorry, but when Isaac's fo- uh, servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerah quarrelled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, "This water is ours." So he called the name of the well Ezek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarrelled over that also, and he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Bathsheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerah with Hazar, Hazar, I can't pronounce it, but his advisor, and fifth Cole, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you in way in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they dug, and said to him, We found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Bethsheba to this day, Bersheba. Let's just pray a minute, can we? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will take your word and that you will speak to each one of us by your word and bring about change by the power of your spirit and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just towards the end of the passage that Julian finished last week, we read that the wells that Abraham had dug were filled in by the Philistines. I want you to imagine these wells. It doesn't say how many wells there were, but we know the wells were filled in. They were blocked up. And we might ask this question. We might say, well, why did the Philistines block those wells? Were they being vindictive? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll be a little bit vindictive today and we'll go and all those wells that Abraham and his men have dug, we'll fill them up to be vindictive. I don't believe that was the reason at all. Let's think about it a moment. If you've got lots and lots of flocks and if you've got lots and lots of herds, what do you need? You need water. You desperately need water. Without water, your flocks and your herds cannot survive. But with water, they can. In other words, those wells enabled Abraham and would enable Isaac to be fruitful in the land. 
You know, when we become Christians, well, before we become Christians, Satan has a, has a purpose. And we know this from the Word of God. His purpose is to keep the eyes of unbelievers blind so that they won't come to God. We know that. But what about when we become Christians? Well, apart from the fact that we very, very soon as Christians realize we're in a battle, Satan has a different purpose. And do you know what his different purpose is? From the second we become a Christian, Satan's purpose is to keep us from being fruitful in the land that God's put us. And do you know how he does that? He does it by bringing things across our path to block the wells. The Bible says that Jesus has put his spirit within us and out of our innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That's what God's intention is for you and I, that the rivers of living water shall be flowing. They're life-giving, not for us, but for those around us, aren't they? And Satan says, I can't have those rivers of life-giving water flowing because if those rivers of life-giving water start to flow, lives will be changed. And so what does he do? He starts to bring things across our path to block the wells. There's lots of different things he can use to block the wells, but I want to mention three. Disappointment. He brings disappointment. Do you feel disappointed in yourself as a Christian? Do you feel disappointed in God? As a Christian, you might not say to other Christians, I'm disappointed in God. You might not even verbalize it to God because that's not actually the done thing, but in your heart there is disappointment. Disappointment because things haven't worked out the way you thought they would work out. Disappointment because God actually hasn't really worked out the way you thought he would work out either. You read it in the Word, but somehow the God you read in the Word and the God you experience are kind of like two different gods. And you say, Lord, I've got to believe this is you because this is your word, but actually my experience of you is very, very different and there's disappointment and Satan will use that disappointment to block the well. Is that you? Disappointment? If it is, God says, I want honesty. I don't want fear. I want honesty. Lord, I'm disappointed in you. I want honesty. What about another well blocker, if I can use that term? It's got a very biblical name and it comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm, I'm saying this from the authorised version, but I'll give you some names from other versions in a minute. And in Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. The name of this well blocker is besetting sin. Listen to this. Let me just read these from the different versions. The King James Version says this, Sin which so easily besets us. The New King James Version says this, Sin so easily ensnares us. The NIV says this, Sin that so easily entangles us. We've all seen a ball of wool tangled, haven't we? It's difficult getting out of it. ESV says, Sin which clings so closely. I want to use the name besetting sin for just for ease. So what is a besetting sin? This is what I believe a besetting sin is. Any sin in our lives that is habitual and we don't seem to have the power to overcome it in ourselves is a besetting sin. Let me say that again. It's not just when we sin or I get cross at the road because someone cut me off in the traffic 
Or I feel tired, so I say something to my wife I shouldn't say. I'm not talking about sin general. I'm talking about one specific sin in our lives that is habitual and we seem powerless to overcome. And that can affect Christians. How do we know it can affect Christians? Because God wouldn't have put it in his word if it couldn't affect Christians. And we have to be honest. And you know the problem with besetting sin is by the very fact that it is habitual. Lord, forgive me that, I won't do it again. Lord, forgive me that, I won't do it again. God, I've done it again. Lord, forgive me, I won't do it again. There is terrible condemnation. And Satan will make sure he condemns us. I want to just remind us about a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful verse at the end of Romans 5. And it says this. And it's just an amazing verse. The truth of it is just so staggering that Paul had to qualify it in Romans chapter 6. And it says this. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Father, you mean this besetting sin, where that abounds, your grace abounds more? And God says, yes. Because it's my grace that breaks the power of sin. Not law. We must never put ourselves under law. If we're struggling with a besetting sin and we say, Lord, I'll never do that again. I'm going to promise you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make an oath before you. I will do everything in my power not to do it. Guess what happens? That sin gets stronger. Do you know how we know? Read Romans 7. It's a Romans 7 experience where Paul said, the thing I want to do I can't do and the thing I don't do I do. And he found that the more he put himself under law, something happened. It says sin revived. We can't overcome sin. If we could overcome sin, Jesus wouldn't have had to die to break the power of sin. We can't do it. But we try, don't we? We try, we try, we try. And God says, stop trying. My grace is sufficient for you. But we have to be honest. So what is the way out of a besetting sin? I believe there's three things that are key to the way out of a besetting sin. Firstly, is to realise that his grace is sufficient for us. To realise it's something that we can't overcome in our own power. The second thing is to be honest about it before God. And to stop trying to overcome it in ourselves. And the third thing I believe is very important as well. It's hard, this third thing, but I believe it's vital. If we're suffering with a besetting sin, I believe it's absolutely vital we share it with someone that we trust. Shall I tell you why? I'll tell you why. The Bible makes it clear that Satan works in darkness. He loves darkness. If he can keep us in darkness, he can work. But the moment we bring something into the light, he loses his power. Amen. The moment we share it with a trusted brother, who we know will not condemn us, but will come alongside. Satan loses his power. It's brought into the light. Now, will it disappear overnight? Very unlikely, because it's an habitual sin. But will that be the beginning of victory? It certainly will. The third well blocker I want to mention very briefly is called this, not really a biblical name, it's called this, the food we eat. Now Julian's going to smile at this point because Julian and I often go out and we have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and we have a cake. So when I say the food we eat, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether Julian chooses a piece of Bakewell tart and I, and I choose a cheese scone. It has nothing to do with that food we eat. What food does it have to do with? It has to do with are we feeding on the lies of the enemy or are we feeding on the truth of God's word? 
Are we feeding on Satan, saying to you, you're a failure, you're no good, you've sinned, you're not going to grow in your Christian life, all of the things that we're familiar with. Are we feeding on that food? If we feed on that food, the well will become blocked. Or are we renewing our minds with the Word of God and feeding on the truth of God's Word? And that's hard. That's hard because it goes against our natural thinking. Everything says, well, I'm a failure. Look at the evidence. Well, there's this, this, there's this, there's this, there's this. By the way, there's this, there's this, there's this. I've got evidence. And God says, I don't want the evidence. What about my word? Isn't my word higher than your evidence? Feed on my word. Because I say to you that you are accepted. You are a new creature in Christ. What food are we feeding on? It will block the well. I believe God would say to us this morning, if any of our wells are blocked, he wants them unblocked. (laughs) So those rivers of living water can start to flow freely. If our well's blocked, does it mean there won't be any flow? No, it doesn't. There will still be a flow. Of course there'll still be a flow. There'll still be life coming from us, praise the Lord. But God says, I don't want just a bit of a flow. I want rivers of living water. I don't want just a trickle. I don't want just a stream. I want rivers of living water flowing. And that means the wells have to be unblocked. So let's look at this piece about um, Isaac building an altar. And there's several things I want to share about Isaac building an altar. So let's go from verse 23. From there Isaac went up to Bathsheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, that's Isaac. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So Isaac built an altar. I wonder why Isaac built an altar. You see, what's the significance of an altar? Well, it has various significances, but an altar can be a place of sacrifice. It can be a place of worship. It can be a place of remembrance. Isaac built an altar. Well, what made Isaac build an altar? Well, you might say, well, it's very obvious why Isaac built an altar. God had just spoken to him. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back further into earlier in chapter 26. Let's have a look at verse 2 in chapter 26. And verse 2 says this, And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath, and I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments and statutes and my laws, so Isaac settled in Gerah. God's just spoken to Isaac, an amazing blessing. And if you compared the length of conversation, the length of conversation that God said at the beginning of Genesis 26 was far longer than the little bit later on. So why did Isaac make an altar? Let's just have a look, see what God says, because there's something wonderful here. Verse 25. From there he went to Bathsheba, 
And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, sorry, verse 24, I am the God of Abraham, your father. <laughs> I am the God of Abraham, your father. Does that I am ring a bell? Do you remember when Moses was in the wilderness and God commissioned him to go to Pharaoh and, and Moses says to God, well, who shall I say sent me? And God says a very strange thing when we read it. He says to Moses, say to Pharaoh, I am sent you. What's that mean? I am. It means God who always was. God who always is. God who always will be. The Alpha and the Omega. No beginning, no end. Can you have anything greater than that? No. And God in effect is saying to Isaac, listen, I am the God of your father, the very God that your father Abraham had a relationship and loved and worshipped. I'm that God. I'm the God I am. Isaac had a revelation of God. Do we need a fresh revelation of God in our hearts today? Do you know what a fresh revelation of God in our hearts does? It causes us to want to build an altar. You could tell when David shared what he shared this morning, the Lord had spoken to him. Isn't it wonderful when God takes his word and he speaks to us personally? Isn't that wonderful? It does something inside us, doesn't it? It becomes life. It's no longer words on a page. It becomes life. It does something to us. And God, by opening up his word, says, this is who I am. And it makes us want to build an altar. We need a revelation of God, don't we? To make us want to build an altar. So Isaac builds an altar. So what would he build his altar with? Well, if we read Exodus 20, which I know is further on from here, obviously, but we're told that, um, that they could build an altar either with earth or with stones. They could build an altar with earth or with stones. It doesn't tell us what Isaac built his altar with, but I would imagine that he would have known that principle because God spoke to his people right from Adam and Eve downwards. And I believe Isaac would have built his altar out of earth or stone. What is earth and what is stone? You ever thought about this? What's earth and what's stone? Earth and stone are broken things. I want to say that again because this is very important. Earth and stone are broken things. Listen to this about earth. When I realised that Isaac could have built his altar about earth, I thought, well, I'll just do a little bit of looking up on Google about earth, about soil. And I want to read you what I came across. It was absolutely amazing. And it's about a particular type of soil. It's about mineral soil that this is talking about. But listen. It says, The process of making mineral-based soil begins by breaking down or weathering the bedrock into smaller fragments. Do you feel broken? Do you feel broken down or weathered down? Circumstances of life just weathering, 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 weathering. Satan's onslaught, just weathering, weathering, weathering. You feel, I'm weathered down, I'm broken down. Do you feel broken? Listen, that's what Isaac used to build something beautiful to God. Isaac collected broken things to build the altar to God. And God says to you and me this morning, I use broken things, hallelujah. 
I use the failures. I use the things that are weak. I use the things that have gone off path but have come back to me. I use the nobodies. God's not interested in somebodies. He can't use somebodies because there's somebody in themselves. If you feel a failure, if you feel a nobody, if you feel weak, you qualify for God to use you. Hallelujah. Do you know why God won't use the strong? Because the strong will depend on their strength. Do you know why God will allow us to be broken down and weathered and battered? So in that process we begin to rely on him and not ourselves. So that the glory might go to him. God's not interested in man being glorified. He doesn't want a man being glorified. He wants Jesus glorified. And when the weak gets up and moves in the power of the Spirit, guess who's glorified? It's Jesus and not the man. When the strong gets up and pretends to move in the Spirit, guess where the glory goes? To the man. Listen, this is very important. If you see the glory going to the man, it's not the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit will always, always, always glorify Jesus. And if Jesus isn't glorified, it is not the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter what's happening. If Jesus isn't lifted and glorified, it is not the Holy Spirit. You feel weak, you feel broken, you feel weathered down. God wants to use you. There's something else, two other things I want to say about the altar. You read in Exodus again that the, the stones that were collected to make the altar had to be a particular type of stone. The Bible uses a strange word. I had to look it up. It says unhewned stones or stones that haven't been hewned. What are stones that haven't been hewned? I'll tell you what stones that haven't been hewned are. The stones that haven't been changed by man. The stones that man hasn't picked up and says, I'll try and improve this stone. You imagine if Isaac had gone around and picked up a stone and thought, I'll try and improve this stone and I'll use it for the altar. I'll try and improve this stone and I'll use it for the altar. That's an abomination to God. Because God says, I don't want man interfering with what I'm doing. And how easy is it for us as Christians to try and improve our performance to make ourselves acceptable to God? Isn't that true? If I pray more, I'll be more acceptable. Praying's a good thing, but it won't make us more acceptable. If I read my Bible more, I'll be more acceptable. Reading our Bible's essential, but it won't make us more acceptable. If I witness more, I'll be more acceptable. Witness is essential, but it won't make us more acceptable. Why? Because the very second we came to God, God made us acceptable in Jesus and we will never ever become more acceptable, we'll never ever become less acceptable than we were the moment we became to Jesus because our acceptability before God is not based on our performance. Does that mean we shouldn't watch how we perform as Christians? No. The Bible's full of instructing us to make sure that our lives are conducted in a right way. But there's a big difference between our lives being conducted in a right way and thinking our acceptance before God is based on our performance. Do you feel your performance is poor this morning? You're just as acceptable before God as when your performance was up there. Listen, if your Christian life and my Christian life is based on a performance-based um, walk with God, our walk with God will be like that all the time. Because we can't maintain that walk. Do you know the Christian life isn't just hard to live, it's actually impossible to live. Do you know that? 
And sometimes as Christians, it takes us a long time, doesn't it, to learn the lesson that I can't live the Christian life. You say, what do you mean I can't live the Christian life? Paul says, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We can't live the Christian life. We'll fail every time. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let's take our eyes off ourselves and say we've got someone in us who can live that Christian life through us. That's Jesus. And God says, I want you coming just as you are. Don't try and improve yourself. And the last thing I want to mention about the altar in closing. I mentioned that the altar was sometimes a place of sacrifice. In other words, it was a place where sacrifices were offered. And of course, when we move to the New Testament, we know that the Lamb of God was sacrificed on our behalf. There are no more animal sacrifices. God has sacrificed his son who took all of our sin, the perfect sacrifice. And all the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, didn't they? But this is the important thing that I believe is applicable for you and I this morning. That on that altar, animals were offered. Well, God doesn't want us offering animals on our altar this morning. But listen, I believe there is something he wants some of us to offer on the altar. He wants us to offer our hurts on the altar. He wants us to offer our unforgiveness on the altar. He wants us to offer our failings on the altar. He wants us to offer our disappointment on the altar. He wants us to offer our brokenness on the altar. Are we willing to do that? God says if you'll offer it on the altar, I will take it and deal with it. Are you willing to do it? God says, I want it offered on the altar, but I won't make you do it, because if I made you do it, it wouldn't be an offering. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you will help each one of us to respond to what you've spoken to us in our hearts. For one person, Lord, it might be one thing. For another person, it might be a totally different thing. It doesn't really matter. But what matters, Father, is if you spoke in our hearts, help us to respond to that by the power of your Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing All Who Are Thirsty. And if while we're singing this song... While we're singing this song, we're going to sing it together, but if you feel there's anything that you've heard just now that has spoken to you personally, we're going to make space for some prayer, some time together. If you want to come forward, I can guarantee you won't be alone. Uh, if our ministry team can just be available, and obviously elders as need be, we'll, we'd love to pray with you. Anything that has come up just now, or if necessary, just between you and God while we're singing this song. This song talks about all who are thirsty, all who are weak. This is about seeking more of the Holy Spirit flowing through us without obstacles, isn't it? Come to the fountain, dip your heart in the stream of life, let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the ways of his mercy. He's a merciful God. He's a God who cares 
really does care about you. So just while we sing this song, let's see what Holy Spirit does. But please do come forward for prayer. Ministry team and ourselves, if necessary, we'd love to pray with you. Let's all, let's all stand.